Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. After all, Yosef didn't live far away. He became eventually the viceroy of Egypt, and even before that. And Egypt is very close to Israel, as we all know. Especially when the family lived in Beersheba, Hebron, such places, really close to Egypt. And so it's weird that Yosef all these years didn't try to say, hey, I'm alive. And because of that, we have all kind of unusual explanations that, you know, there was like a a certain uh, conspiracy of silence, and uh, even the Shekhinah was part of it. It's uh, wild stuff. Uh, but to try to understand it in a more prosaic fashion is very difficult. How come there was no attempt to contact the family? And even when he does contact the family, when he reveals himself to his brothers, they never actually have it out. They don't communicate. Why did you do this to me? Uh, of course, on the other hand, what are the brothers supposed to say? We thought you were a murderer. You said the sun, the moon, and the stars would bow down to you. All the sheaves of wheat would bow down to you. It happened by the time he reveals himself to the brother. He's become the viceroy of Egypt. And indeed, all the sun and the moon and the stars, including the brothers, by the way, all bowed down to him. And it was all because of his mastery of the food situation, which means all the almim, all the sheaves of wheat bowed down to him. So what they had considered to be some 17-year-old pompous fool who was a threat to take over them, they were completely mistaken. They see, on the contrary, his visions were accurate and did not foretell any kind of malevolent attitude towards them. On the contrary, Anochi I'm going to take care of you. Every day for the rest of their lives, when the brothers and the father were in Egypt, three times a day when they got their meals, it was from Yosef. There was no food. It could only be given out by the government. And so the guy they said was a threat and was out to kill them is the one who keeps them alive. Think about that every day. How did the brothers feel? But on the other hand, we have no record of the brothers that were saying, gee, we're sorry, and it was a mistake, and we feel like idiots now, and uh, can you forgive us? It's weird, you know? It's a, it's a big gaping hole in the story. And Yaakovino, it doesn't say, when he meets Yosef, he said, gee, what happened? What happened to you? What did your brothers say to you? Looks like they never have this conversation out, and because of that... You have this strange situation, at least it seems to me. They have like a funny existence. Yosef is in Egypt, the brothers live in Goshen. He doesn't have much to do with them, at least based on what we're told. Uh, we don't know how the brothers related to him. As a matter of fact, this is such an ambiguous part of the story. I just happen to remember, as I said, I'm in Florida, away from all my books, that uh, it's a fundamental machlukas in the Chazal over how the brothers reacted when he revealed himself to them. According to Medrash Rabbah, the brothers said, Oh, by Yafa Glim, they, they went into a heart attack. This is our brother Yosef, they felt guilty, and they were filled with love for him now. On the other hand, the Medish Tanchuma, which is an equally valid Medish, says, there's Yosef, the guy who caused all trouble, let's kill him. And they try to rush him and kill him, but we're prevented from doing so. Which means that you have a radically different or set of two explanations which really differ with each other as to the attitude and the relationship of the brothers to Yosef after he revealed himself to them. Why are all these holes in the story? This sort of shows us that one of the problems we have with the Yavis in this particular situation 
was that they never had a frank talking with each other, uh, which we know from other family situations that, you know, sometimes two relatives end up not speaking to each other for a while and then they patch it up, but they don't really patch it up. They just agree to be nice to each other on uh, bar mitzvahs and weddings and other occasions, but it never really settles the issue. It's always hanging over it. And so my point is that the story of the crime, the crime, I say, of Sale of Yosef, is never resolved and it just enters Jewish history as a fundamental aspect of the Jewish character. We are a people who are not good at getting along with each other. We are a people who've always had trouble communicating with each other. And I'm sorry. We always have people who have trouble communicating with each other. And as a result, uh, the Jewish people in their, their history have never had a good record of politics. If you want a good political people to the Anglo-Saxons who organized effective democratic institutions of government, you know, nonviolent conflict resolution, the, the classic sense of the word politics. But the Jews went by Israel, by Shani. Afterwards, we've never been that good at it. And this is not only my part. If you look at the Rambam, very famous Rambam in the in the uh, in the Guide for the Perplexed, he says, "Why is it that the Torah, or God, leader designates uh, the sin offering, the carbon chattis that a person brings when he doesn't have ear? It's a goat." And the Rambam says that's to commemorate the mechiras Yosef, the sale of Joseph by the brothers. It's the original sin of the Jewish people, and that means that you and I and any Jew, every time he or she commits a sin, has to bring a offering to expiate it in the base of Migdash, in the Holy Temple, that you bring as a offering the animal, which reminds us immediately of the sale of Yosef, the unresolved crime from long ago. And there's a lot more to say on this, I'm afraid, because it seems that Yaakov and Yosef don't talk too much with each other during the 17 years that Yaakov's living in Egypt. After all, Yaakov lives in Goshen, and Joseph lives in the Egyptian capital, running the country, as we know. And when he brings his two sons over there, you know, he says, who are these people? And he says, you know, it's your children, your grandchildren. And uh, it's totally understandable. Look, the other brothers grew up speaking Yiddish or whatever. They spoke in Yaakov's house. Yosef's kids had a non-Jewish mother who converted, of course. And then they grew up in Egypt. So it's like in America, you know, the grandparents can talk in Yiddish, but it's hard for the grandchildren to speak to the grandparents. And it is true, and he was able to impress Yaakov with the fact, look, uh, they daven, they learn, they keep Shabbos, they keep kosher, they keep all the other things. They're 100% Jewish, to the point that Yaakov says, Ephraim and Menashe, Kerubim and Shem Yuli, did Ephraim and Menashe just like my other kids. That's true. But this gap is always there. Like, you know, Ephraim and Menashe are always saying, how come my father doesn't have a normal relationship with his brothers and with his father the way others do? And so this leaves us with a big uh, question mark and a challenge, perhaps. We read this every year. Any partially reading the Torah, which you read yearly, is because the issues it raises are existential. They do not go away. They're just part of the human character, and they're certainly part of the Jewish character. And perhaps it behooves us all, when we consider relationships with friends, family, and others, to ask ourselves, do we have an honest uh, relationship in which we can uh, you know, express ourselves and thrash out problems that exist among us? Or do we have one of those relationships in which it's too dangerous to do that? Instead, we just smile politely, 
don't see each other except once every 17 years. And we have a relationship fraught with great danger. Ad Kedekach, that it was, I think, last week's Parsha. Only in the Messianic era, does the prophet tell us, will Yehuda and Yosef be tied together in one stick. Uh, you can always read these things optimistically, but I'm a pessimist by nature. What it's saying is it'll take the Mashiach site for that to happen. Only at the end of time will the Jews see a lot of the energy and time we put into knocking each other was a waste. And perhaps we could have even brought Mashiach earlier if we'd gotten past that. But it is part of the Jewish character, and uh, Parshish Vayichi reminds us of that. Once again, good Shabbos from Florida. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.